I invite you now to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. And we're going to look tonight at the prayer uh, that Paul concludes the first half of Ephesians uh, with uh, in verses 14 through 21. But this morning, uh, if you were here, you heard Pastor Mark place before us a challenge for the new year that we, uh, that his, his title was that one thing that we embrace a laser-focused determination to know Jesus Christ more fully and more deeply. But I ask you this, what is the catalyst to know, to want to know Jesus better? What is the motivation that will produce a desire that we know Christ, that we long to know him better? If you're in a bit of a funk spiritually, or if you have been in the grip of idolatrous love for comfort, as Mark talked about this morning, which really can lead to something of a spiritual stupor. Uh, Or maybe if you, as he said, if you suffer from a case of spiritual ADD, uh, you may be asking, why should I set my focus on knowing Jesus Christ better? Now, none of us would actually ask that question out loud. But our behavior, our action, our lack of motive or motivation might be an expression of the fact that we really have not sufficiently answered the question. Why do I need to reorder my life in such a way that that I I embrace this determined and diligent, all-in, unwavering, single-hearted pursuit of a deeper knowledge of Jesus Christ? I'm comfortable where I am. Well, the simple answer that Paul gives us is the reason we should set our hearts to know him better is because of how much he loves us. Uh, In 2 Corinthians 5 and verses 14 and 15, Paul writes, the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, that all those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You see, the love of Christ controls us. It compels us not to live for ourselves, but to live for him, for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you might say, well, is love of Christ, is that my love for Christ or his love for me? Uh, Well, John tells us we love because he first loved us, so I think it's primarily his love for us, but producing in us a deeper love for him. So the catalyst for a greater love for him and for others is a fuller comprehension of his love for us. So this, for this reason, I want to draw our attention together this evening to this prayer of Paul that uh, as he prays that you and I will comprehend together the vast dimensions of the love of Jesus Christ for us and that we will be gripped with a compelling realization of the greatness of his love. Please follow as I read Ephesians 3 beginning in verse 14. For this reason... I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, so that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God." Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. In this text, we find uh, it breaks out well into four points. First of all, the magnitude of Paul's request, the progression of Paul's request, the purpose of Paul's request, and then finally the promise behind Paul's request. I really looked for a P that indicated magnitude, and I couldn't find one, but that's okay. Now, first of all, do we have any English teachers in here? Any English teachers? I I wonder how many people would give an A to Paul who writes verses 14 through 19 in one sentence. I'm not quite sure that we would say that's the best English composition, but thankfully, Paul was writing in Greek. And however 
it might translate into English, it is a majestic and a wonderful prayer. So let's look at the magnitude of this request, first of all. Paul is asking, he is requesting something from the Lord that's truly enormous, and he appeals to the gospel blessings that are laid out in chapters 1 through 3. When he says, for this reason, he's drawing a conclusion. Uh, He's come to the end of chapter 1, 2, and 3 where he has expounded for us the various dimensions of the gospel the very rich spiritual blessings that we have in Jesus Christ. And in chapter 1, you see that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we might be holy and blameless in His sight. And in love, He predestined us to adoption as His sons through Christ. And we have redemption through the blood of Christ. We have the forgiveness of our sins. And it says He lavished this forgiveness upon us in the riches of His grace. He's given us the knowledge. He's revealed to us the mystery of His will. uh, He's purposing to unite all things together in Christ in heaven and on earth, which includes us, His people. In Christ, it says, we've obtained an inheritance. We've been sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is a promise, a guarantee of our heavenly inheritance. All these are expressions of the great love that God has for us in Jesus Christ. And when we come into chapter 2, it says that even though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God loved us. Even though we were given over to rebellion, verse 4 and 5 says that God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive in Christ. It's by grace you've been saved. He raised us up. He seated us with Jesus Christ in the heavenly places. And in the coming days, he's going to show us uh, the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Over and over, Paul is unpacking these expressions of the love of God. He saved us by grace through faith. Uh, We didn't have to do anything to earn that. It's entirely by grace, a free gift. And God even gives us the faith. It says he created us in Christ Jesus. We're his workmanship, created in Christ to do good works, which he prepared for us in advance that we should do them. He's addressing Gentile Christians and saying, God has united you. They were, you were Christless. You were homeless. You were friendless. You were hopeless. You were far off, but now you have been brought near in Jesus Christ. You have, uh, the, this, bro- this wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile has been broken down, and we've all have been reconciled together to the Father. We have access, verse 18 in chapter 2 tells us, we have access to His throne of grace through the Spirit to the Father. Verse 19 says, we're no longer strangers, but we're, we're, we're fellow citizens with the saints. We're members of the household of God. We're all Jew and Gentile being built together into a holy temple in the Lord. In chapter 3, Paul tells us that as Gentiles, we were fellow heirs. We're, we're members of the very same body, partakers of the promise of Jesus Christ. It says, in him, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Now, when we get to chapter 4, Paul's going to begin to apply all these gospel realities in very specific ways that we should live godly lives, walking in a manner of the worthy of the gospel. Before he gets that, this hinge between the, the indicatives of what he has done for us in the gospel and the imperatives of how we ought to respond, we have this hinge prayer of Paul that we might know the love of God for us in Christ that has been unpacked and and displayed for us gloriously in the preceding three chapters. So, Paul is praying that we'll grasp these vast dimensions of the love that God has for us, which he has just explained. And and, and he he emphasizes the magnitude of this, this request by invoking all three members of the Trinity, Look at, uh, in, in, verse, um, uh, in verse 15 or 14, he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Uh, that Verse uh, 16, According to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ, verse 17, might dwell in your hearts through faith. He is drawing our attention to all three members of the Trinity because what he is requesting is of such enormous consequence. The magnitude is also reflected in uh, this complex introduction. He says, for this reason, pointing back, as I said, to the first three chapters in the gospel, uh, he has explained, but he says, I bow my knees before the Father, meaning this is why I'm praying for you. 
as a response of what I've just said. I'm praying these things for you. But then he emphasized the universal authority of God as our Father. Every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. That according to the riches and his glory, that, that word according to, it, it means in, in proportion to or, or in keeping with. So in, in keeping with or in proportion to the glorious riches or the riches of God's glory. Now, how rich is God's glory? It's infinite, isn't it? Uh, in the New City Catechism, it speaks, who is God? God's eternally infinite, unchangeable in his power, perfection, goodness, glory, wisdom, justice, and truth. God's glory is infinite. It's unchangeable. It's inexhaustible. And so Paul prays that in keeping with or in accordance with <clears throat> the riches of his glory, in proportion to the riches of his glory, Paul is asking for something truly monumental. It's a majestic request. But I want you to see also the progression of this request. He, he prays for four specific things, but they're not four separate requests. They're actually, uh, they build upon one another, layer upon layer, leading to a glorious climax. He says, I pray that God may grant you to be strengthened with power through, the, through his Holy Spirit. He prays that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints uh, and to know the vast dimensions of the love of Jesus Christ and that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. But again, these are not separate, distinct requests. They are progression. One leads to the next, to the next, to the next. So let's look first of all at this first request. Paul, in verse 16, is, is piling truth upon truth. He says, I, I, I pray that according to the rich of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. How many prepositional phrases are in this one long sentence? I haven't counted, but it's a bunch. But the point there is that, that he doesn't just say, I'm praying for God to give you strength. He's saying, I'm praying that the measure of that strength is according to the riches of his glory. And we talked about the greatness of that already. But he's asking God to do something really, really big. And then secondly, he says, I, I pray that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power. Uh, again, he's, he's piling truth upon truth. The, and this word power, we, we find it in chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. says that, uh, that, that, that God has enlightened our hearts that we may know the hope to which he's called you and what are the rich of his glorious inheritance of the saints. Verse 19, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places. Paul is using this very same word. The power God employed to raise Jesus from the dead, Paul's saying, according to that power, I'm praying that he's gonna do something incredible in you that he will strengthen your hearts, that he will grant you to be strengthened with that kind of power through his Holy Spirit in your inner being. This is not the kind of power we can develop in our own efforts. This is spiritual power, power at the very deepest level of the heart. Now, as Pastor Mark pointed out this morning, uh, it doesn't mean we sit there and, and passively expect God to zap us. Sanctification is Synergistic. It's a cooperative endeavor where we are to pursue after the knowledge of Christ and the deeper uh, intimacy with Christ. And God blesses us by grace with that knowledge. In the same way, we shouldn't just expect God to zap us with a deeper understanding of his love. We have to focus on that love, meditate on that love, sing of that love, dwell on that love, talk of that love. And the more we do, the more uh, avenues he has into our hearts to strengthen us with a deeper awareness of his love. Sinclair Ferguson asks the question, why do our hearts need to be strengthened? And he says the answer is quite simple, because our hearts are too weak and too narrow to contain the treasure that God wants to place in them. My heart is too weak and too small or too narrow to contain the treasure God wants to place in my heart, and so is yours. And so, so Paul is asking God to strengthen us by the power of the Holy Spirit to, so that you might grasp something that no human could possibly grasp in his own devices or with his own resources. It's enormous. And that leads to the second request, so that, that, that God might strengthen you in such a way that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, some of you are saying, no, wait a minute. 
Paul's writing to Christians here. Why would Paul pray that Christ would dwell in the hearts of Christians through faith if he's already there? I don't believe Paul's talking here about this, this initiating or this Jesus taking up residence where he no longer or he, he has not before resided. He's not talking about conversion here. He's talking that, that Christ would, would, uh, would uh, uh, increasingly occupy every corner and every uh, isolated place, every single uh, uh, room and every single closet in our hearts. Every part of our being would be more fully, uh, fully yielded to the Lord. And that by faith, we would become increasingly aware, I want you to think of this term, increasingly aware of his favorable presence. What does that mean, favorable presence of the Lord? That Jesus delights to dwell in our hearts. Jesus is not a reluctant occupant. He says to the, 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 the uh, Laodicean believers who were lukewarm, who basically had excluded him from their fellowship, he says, I'm standing here, I'm knocking on the door of your hearts that if anyone hears me, I will come in and dwell with him and he with me. Jesus wants to, longs to have fuller and deeper fellowship with his people. And our hearts sometimes are too small and too narrow and too preoccupied to recognize that truth. So Paul prays that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, what's the heart? What's the heart? We talked about this Wednesday in prayer meeting. The heart is, uh, I love this definition. It's our true identity. It's who we really are. I love this. It's the motivational center of your life. It's what you think. It's what you feel. It's what you believe. It's It's your volitional center what you will to do. It's that motivational center. All the things that cooperate together to motivate you to determine how you live, that is the heart. And Jeremiah tells us the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. But Jesus comes to give us a new heart, take away the heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. And he wants to occupy that heart with a sense of his favorable presence, that he is with you and delighted to be so delighted in you. Let me say it again. He's with you, and not just delighted to be in you, but delighted in you. Just, just tuck that away. We're going to talk about it again in a few minutes. But in, in the way that Paul prays for this, that we would be strengthened with power by spirit in the inner being, uh, it's the sense that uh, this is something that cannot happen in our own strength. It's something only that, uh, as he says in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who gives me strength, meaning I can do whatever God wants me to do through him who gives me strength. I can comprehend that which he wants me to comprehend because Jesus will give me the strength to do so. So first, Paul is praying that we be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner being, and he's praying that the result is that Christ would dwell in our hearts more fully through faith. And the third request he makes here is in verses 17 through 19, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That really is the core of Paul's request. It's the, the focus of my message this evening, that you and I together would comprehend the greatness of God's love for us, that you and you and you, that you would sense, God loves me that much. God loves us that much. So let's see how Paul forms this request. He says that you might be rooted and grounded in love. Rooted speaks of a tree that's firmly rooted, that is not going anywhere. It's established. It's strong. It's unmovable. Grounded speaks of a, of, a, of a building with a solid foundation built on the rock, not on sand. Both images reflect this, this stability, this, this staying power, this unwavering ability rooted and grounded in love. Now, now the fact is we're, we're, we're far too fickle, right? Our feelings come and they, our feelings go. Our, our motivation waxes and it wanes. It's all too inconsistent. We make New Year's resolutions that next week we forget about. Oh, oh yeah, I, I forgot. I, I said I was going to do that, didn't I? We lose heart. We get distracted. We get weak knees and weak hands. We forget or we fail to bring to mind. We fail to remember that which we ought 
So Paul wants us to be steadfast and immovable. How? Rooted and grounded in love, the love of God in Christ. And the thing that will make us steadfast is the sense that he loves us so. And that, that, that being rooted and grounded in love is going to give us staying power. It's going to give us strength. Paul uses three different words, might and strength and power, to, to, to describe what he's asking God to give us. And each one has a little bit different shade of meaning. And the one that he uses here in verse 18, that rooted and grounded in love, you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what's the breadth and length and so forth. That word strength is sufficient strength, that you may have uh, uh, all the strength that is necessary to lay hold of that which is incomprehensible. Again, why emphasizing strength? Because our hearts are weak, because they're fickle. Uh, And Paul is asking us Uh, or rather what Paul is asking for God to do for us and in us is no small thing. And we need sufficient strength to comprehend the breadth and the length and the depth and the height to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Now, I want to unpack this a little bit. He prays that we might comprehend the love of Christ. That means, comprehend means that we, we, we can wrap our arms around it, that we understand its dimensions. We, we lay hold of the reality of Christ such that it is, this knowledge is now mine. I, I, I read of it, I hear of it, uh, I, I understand what it means, and, and I make it my own. I've comprehended this truth. It's like Job at the end of his ordeal. He says to the Lord, my ears had heard of you, but my heart, or excuse me, but now my eyes have seen you. He has comprehended the knowledge and the love of God for him. And so, Paul is praying that we might uh, embrace, we might make our own, as it were, this fuller and this deeper knowledge uh, of the love of Christ. But also, this word know, it, it speaks of an experiential knowledge, a knowledge that comes from I've been there and I've seen it for myself. I've experienced it. I've entered into the depths of it. It's more than simply an accurate theological formula. But it's where you and I are profoundly impacted by the reality of his love, that our hearts have been transformed and are being transformed and renewed day after day by a sense, the overwhelming sense that God loves us. Are you overwhelmed by anything in this life? Paul wants us to be overwhelmed, not with our circumstances, not with the challenges, not with trials, certainly not with temptations. He wants us to be overwhelmed with the love of God for us in Jesus Christ. And so that's what he prays. He describes this, these vast dimensions, the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. And I don't think that we're supposed to, to, to go off and say, well, what does we mean by the, the breadth and the length? I don't think Paul is really uh, uh, encouraging us to dissect it like that, where we lose the forest for the trees. But rather, he wants us to get a sense of just how vast God's love for us truly is. We don't want to miss the point by parsing the words. Paul says, I'm praying that your heart will be gripped with the grandeur and the vastness of the love that Jesus Christ has for you. God's love is not merely a theological abstraction. It's a personal reality. It's something that every single one of us ought to embrace more deeply. Ferguson, again, says that our hearts are too weak and narrow to grasp such things on our own, and so we need the empowering of the Spirit of God. We need the presence of Jesus Christ to to, uh, expand our hearts, to, to enable us to lay hold of and experience the depths and the breadth and the length and the height. No this love. Now, this love, this experience of his love doesn't happen in isolation. Paul is not saying, I'm praying that you all go off into your closet and have the best quiet times of your life. Now, personal, private prayer and, and, and study of the Word are essential to healthy Christian life, but he is saying here, I pray that you will comprehend together with all the saints. I think what he's saying here is this is something God does in community. And as you study Ephesians 2 and 3, we see how God has made the many one. He's broken down that dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. He's reconciled us to God our Father, but to one another as well. And as we as a family 
understand more of God's love for us as individuals, that love spreads. As you see God's love to another Christian and say, wow, look how God has loved that person. As you see God's love coming through that person, as you see them love others, possibly loving you, and you see the reality of it, that it makes an impact on your heart and on your life. As you see uh, his love uh, manifested, not only in the truths of the gospel, but in the impact of the gospel, in the one another's, the flesh and blood, brothers and sisters in Christ that are here. As we share that with each other, we grow in a deeper sense and a deeper awareness of his love. Dear friends, don't keep it to yourself. That's why we sing. We are speaking together to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs declaring to each other the depths of his love for us in Christ. Are you speaking it, and are you listening? There's a paradox here, isn't there? He prays that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. He basically is praying that you might know something that, that is beyond your ability to know, that you might comprehend something that is incomprehensible. Our weak human frames cannot grasp the vastness of this love, and yet Paul prays that we will. So how do we do that? How do we discover more intensely and more personally this love of Christ for us? Well, Paul has told us already that God's revealed it to us in the gospel. And he's unpacked the dimensions of his love for us, point by point, for three chapters. And we see this love over and over expressed throughout the scriptures. And I would encourage you, study the affirmations of God's love in the word and grapple with that this is mine this is God's love to me it's not just he loves people out there in some abstract form this is personal to me for instance John chapter 15 verses 13 and 14 he says greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends and you are my friends if you do what I command you Jesus saying nobody has greater love than I do I'm not going to lay down my life for you and in fact, God takes it a step further, and he says uh, in Romans 5, 8, God manifests or demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still sinners, not friends, but sinners, Christ died for us. We need to personalize that. Jesus died for me in spite of the fact that I was a sinner, in spite of the fact that I was hostile, in spite of the fact that I had made myself an enemy of God. I'd rebelled. I'd gone my own way. There was nothing in me he saw that was worthy of his love, that was lovable, and yet he chose to love me. He, uh, he, he regarded me as worthy of his love, even though I'm not. That's an amazing, amazing statement. I think uh, the Greek word agape we know that's the kind of love that Christians are supposed to have. It's 1 Corinthians 13 love. It's John 3:16. God loved the world so, so much. But it's also in 1 John where John says, do not love the world or the things of the world. For if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. Now, what does he mean, do not agape the world? It means do not invest value into the world. Do not believe the world is worth your life commitment. Do not invest value in the world where it doesn't belong. But rather, love one another. Invest value in one another because it does belong there. God loved you not because you were valuable or worthy of that love. He loved you because he imputes value to you. He regards you as worthy of his love. Even though by nature you're not, he regards you as worthy of that, so he sent his son to die for you. He prizes you. He delights in you. He sets his heart upon you. He he, uh, commits himself to you. That's what love is, and that's what love does. The the word phileo, filial love, is also in the Bible. It speaks to a kind of love where we enjoy one another. We get something from each other. I have friends. And and in fact, Paul tells us that we're never to be lacking in filial kind of love. We should enjoy each other. But we also must love each other in that sense where my focus is not on what I'm getting out of it. My focus is I regard you as worthy of my love. I regard you as important enough for me to love you intensely, just like Christ has loved me. I wasn't worthy of it, but he regarded me 
for some reason I don't understand, as worthy of that love. And so he loved me, and he calls us to love each other in the very same way. 1 John 4, verse 9 and 10, in this, is the lo- or in this the love of God was made manifest or revealed among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Children, do you know that big word, propitiation? Do you know what it means? It means the sacrifice that Jesus made to pay the penalty for our sins. God's judgment, the wages of sin is death. Well, the only way that your sins could be paid for so that you don't have to pay for them is for Jesus to do it in your place. That's the propitiation. He satisfies the righteous requirements that are caused by your sin. God loves us in that he sent Jesus to do that. The question is, Do you know that as a personal reality in your own life? God loves the world so much he sent his son. And he loves so much he invites anyone who will come and he will embrace you. But that saving love is reserved for those who have put their trust in Christ. So have you done that? Do you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? You can know this love. And you need to know this love. Pastor Mark this morning talked about Pursuing Christ, he had this wonderful illustration of a man who's fleeing after a shark and he's swimming for all he's worth for the boat where there's safety. And not only is he reaching for them, but they're reaching for him and he's saying, I I, I lay hold of that for which Christ also laid hold of me. Great illustration. But we're not simply running from danger here. We are, but we're also running to the most delightful and most soul-fulfilling love imaginable. And we must, and we need to. In Ephesians chapter 2, right across the page, verses 4 and 5, I mentioned this earlier. We were by nature children of wrath, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Romans 8, at the end of the chapter, Paul assures us that no matter what may come, there's nothing in heaven on earth, nowhere, anywhere, no one who can ever separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. So let me ask you, why do we need these constant assurances? Why do we find over and over in the Old Testament as well as the New that God loves us so? I would suggest a number of reasons. One is because we're way too influenced by our feelings, and our feelings come and go. Sometimes we sense Christ's love for us, sometimes we don't. Let me ask you, when was the last time you were singing a hymn about the love of Christ and you got to a place where you just had to stop for a second, you got choked up, and you had to fight back tears because it was just overwhelming to you that he would love you so? Do you know that experience? It's deep and it's rich. And it's a reality, that love. But sometimes we don't feel it. We, we might... We're prone to forget. We, we get distracted by other things. We set our hearts on lesser desires. Jeremiah speaks of forsaking the fountain of living water and digging out for ourselves broken cisterns that hold no water. Why would we do that? Because we don't realize what a rich fountain of overflowing joy the love of Christ is for us. Another reason we need these assurances because sometimes Christians go through long seasons of affliction, suffering, Trials that, that linger, that, 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 that they continue like with Job, and it just seems to get worse and worse on and on. And whereas Job at the beginning of his trial could confidently affirm that uh, God has taken, God has taken away, may his name be praised. But later on, as the, the trial wore on, Job wasn't so sure of God's love for him. Job wasn't so sure that God really had good purposes and intentions for him. And so we're tempted to ask the question, if God really loves me, why doesn't he not deliver me from this trial? With the psalmist, we say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And why are you so far from saving me and from the words of my groaning? Another reason we need those reminders, the assurances of a sin, is because we allow sin and guilt and regret and shame to cause us to shrink back. How could Jesus love somebody who's done what I've done? How could Jesus love somebody who uh, I've confessed the same thing over and over and over again? Uh, How can he endure with me? 
Surely he must not love me. There's some Christians, sincere Christians, who wrestle with a a form of perfectionism that uh, feels like somehow you have to influence God to love you by reaching a certain level of spiritual performance. You have to earn God's favor. You, You struggle to believe that God loves you as freely as the gospel says he does. You feel like you have to do something. And if you do sin, you feel like you have to earn your way back into his good graces. And you might even say, well, maybe God is that lavish in his love for other people, but there's no way he could be for me. I'm somehow the exception. So I have to somehow make myself worthy of his love. No, you don't. And the fact is, if that's your orientation, you will never quite get there. It will always be just out of reach. And you'll always be frustrated. But Paul says, no, I'm praying that you might know his love is already there. And it's already overwhelming to your soul. Another reason that we need these assurances is because we all go through times of spiritual dryness. We, 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 feel, we, we feel spiritually flat or, or just kind of empty. And, and we can allow those feelings to control the way we, we interact with God and even with other people. And we can find ourselves questioning, maybe does God even really love me if I feel this, this, this spiritually dry, if I feel like he's abandoned me? Or maybe you've known a time of of significant questioning or doubts about your salvation. Sincere Christians go through time where they they lack assurance. They're plagued by doubt. And, and, And possibly that's a reality for some of you here now. And you're wondering, does Jesus really love me? And it's interesting, as I was thinking through that, the question is not so much did I pray the sinner's prayer right, did I say the right things? Did I have the right motives? Did I, no, does Jesus really love me? Does he love you? Does he love you? Does he love you in a saving way to make you his, to secure you, to die to pay for your sins, to welcome you as you come to him? Because all, whoever comes to him, he'll never drive away. And to come back for you and take you to himself and to rejoice over you as his radiant bride. Does he love you? Paul's praying that you would know that. If you're gripped with a sense of that greatness of his love, you're not going to struggle with doubts for your salvation. You'll know he does. So we come to the fourth request, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, that's really the purpose of the overall request. And so we're going to look at it as our fourth major point. The purpose of his request is that we might be filled with the fullness of God. Now, this may not be a concept you, you think about much. What does it mean to be filled with the fullness of God? Well, look at Ephesians 4, verses 11 and following. The apostle Paul speaks of the the gifts he's given to the church. He says he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What's he talking about here? He's talking about uh, the full measure of maturity and, and the fulfilling or, or the, 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 the totality of enjoyment, of experience that God has for his child here in this earth. He speaks of a heart that is this full and overflowing of the reality of Jesus Christ loving you, not just love in abstract. It's not just singing, oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free. Yes, singing that, but recognize that that love covers me, covers you. It's personal. It's real. Paul Paul is praying something of the fulfillment of Jesus' invitation in John chapter 7 where he says, uh, if if, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. It's, that, it's not just the, uh, the trickle, but it's the, the gushing fullness of experience of joy in the love of Jesus Christ. Now, when we run after broken cisterns that hold no water, we're going to come back dry. And we're going to say, why do I feel so dry? Well, because you've been running to the wrong source. The cure for that dry empty feeling is to be filled with the fullness of God, to run to Christ, to be overwhelmed with a sense of his love for you. Again, that's something you cannot manufacture. You don't have it within you, and neither do I. And so we need God to do that for us. We need to pursue after him with all our hearts, asking him, show me 
Fill me with a sense of your love. Now, we're not supposed to live by feelings, right? Okay, we've already talked about, you know, the fact that we're so prone to go live by feelings that that can be a problem. But the reality is we're also not supposed to be devoid of feelings. We're not supposed to be absent holy affections. If you rightly understand and comprehend the greatness of God's love for you in Jesus Christ, if you understand who it is who loves you so, and if you rightly recognize what his love cost him to make you his, and if you rightly appreciate what his love has accomplished for you and in you, it's going to produce in you holy affections. You're going to feel it. You're going to sense that love and be amazed that God would love you so. Paul is praying that you and I would know such powerful Affections. Jonathan Edwards, in his book, Religious Affection, says, the enjoyment of God is the only happiness for which our souls can be satisfied. Oh, God, would you satisfy my soul with a deeper sense of your love? Now, this joy produced by this sense of the love of Christ has some profoundly practical benefits. And I want to look at eight benefits of the, 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 what happens when we sense the love of God for us in Jesus Christ. First of all, 1 John 1, 9 says we love because he first loved us. So if we understand more of his love, it's going to make us more loving. And I said at the outset that, that it's his love, the love of Christ, that, that controls us so that we no longer live for ourselves, but we live for Christ, that we love him and we love other people. And so we need that sense of his love to have a controlling influence in our lives. One, so we'll love him more, but also we'll love others as well, and we'll long to know him better. I mean, if you love Jesus with all your heart, you're going to want to know him the best you can, right? A second benefit, John says in John, or Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Now, this is not a manipulative statement. How many of you ever heard someone say, if you really love me, you'll, and then they'll do, make some kind of selfish request, right? If you really love me, you'll do what I tell you to do, right? This is not manipulation here. This is a spiritual reality. Obedience to the commands of Jesus are the inevitable fruit of love for Jesus because we realize who he is and how much he has loved us. And it's the difference between evangelical obedience and moralism, Moralism is where you obey out of a sense of duty because you're trying to earn his love or you're trying to earn his favor or you're trying to avoid his punishment. But evangelical obedience is obedience that's fueled by love for Jesus Christ. You realize what he's done for you in the gospel and it produces in you a desire to please him and a carefulness not to grieve the Holy Spirit or to displease him. So evangelical obedience, we obey out of a response for God's love to us that we have come to know through the gospel of Jesus Christ. A third practical benefit of a deeper knowledge of the love of God is there's encouragement there for the discouraged. In Lamentations chapter 3, Jeremiah is lamenting the loss of his ministry and the destruction of Judah at the hands of the Babylonians. And he's speaking of just how utterly disillusioned he is. Everything he hoped for has come to ruin. And he's he's meditating on just how devastated and brokenhearted and crushed he is. And in the middle of all of that, he says, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I shared that with one of our young people this week. And the response I got was, I've known that verse a long time. I never realized it was in that context. It was in the context of utter spiritual disillusionment. I call to mind that which I was not thinking about, that which I was forgetting, I was ignoring, I was overlooking, that his steadfast, his saving, his redeeming love never ceases. Nothing can separate us from it. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. That is sound basis to sustain us through times of discouragement or even depression and ultimately to deliver us from it. This love is a source of encouragement and strength and hope when your circumstances seem hopeless. As we read, uh, as, as we read at the end of Romans 8, there's nothing that could ever separate us from his love. Do you feel a lack of hope? Realize that his love 
is absolute. It's steadfast. There's nothing that could come your way that could change that reality. Another benefit, the fifth benefit, is it enables us to love those that God has placed in our lives. Anybody here have trouble loving other people? Okay, one honest, two, three, three honest people, okay. Uh, now, there are people in our heart, in our lives that are, uh, uh, that just, we don't feel a natural attraction. So, it's hard to love them. But what about the people you're supposed to love the most? And selfishness gets in the way at home, doesn't it? And we don't love as well as we ought to. Well, what's the problem there? We love because he first loved us. If he has so loved us, so we also ought to love one another. And so, when our, when our, our, our hearts are gripped by this love, it makes sense to overflow to others. Jesus says, a new command I give you. Now, the old command was love your neighbors yourself. The new command is, as I have loved you, so you also ought to love one another. That he raises the bar and makes his love for us the standard by which we are to love others. A sixth benefit is that as we are growing in our love for Christ, we're enabled to hate sin more and more. When your heart is gripped for love with, with love for the Lord Jesus, you're going to love the things that he loves, and you're also going to hate the things that he hates. You're going to want to please him, and you're not going to want to displease him. And so you'll see sin in its true colors. And however much Satan uh, dresses up temptation to make it look attractive, you'll recognize what an offense it is to the Lord who loves you so and whom you love, and it breaks that power that sin might otherwise have over you. As you grow in a sense of the love of Jesus Christ, and as you're filled with the fullness of his love, you are going to live out of a sense of spiritual fullness, not out of a sense of spiritual deficit. How many of you feel like you're running on fumes? Do you need a fresh recharge, as it were, a sense of the love of God for you in Jesus Christ? Well, the answer is all of us need that, which is why Paul prays that for the Ephesian church, and he prays it for all of us. And we should pray it for one another. Now, Christian, on number eight, I want you to pay very close attention. Because sometimes, as I said a moment ago, this concept of God's love in Christ seems too abstract. It's a it's a theological concept, all right? You know, we speak of the love of God as one of his attributes, and we, we can, we can uh, delineate the ways his love is manifested to us. We can formulate it, and we can describe it, and we can sing about it, and we, we can proclaim it. We can tell others about it. We can recite verses about it. But sometimes we have a very, very hard time just saying, he really loves me that much. In Zephaniah 3, verse 17, the Lord, your God, is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Zephaniah proclaims this to a people who are rebellious and says, God's going to restore you. This is the heart of God toward his people. This is the heart of God toward you and towards me if you're a Christian. And I don't know about you, but there are times I I struggle with this idea, wait a minute, God rejoicing over me with loud singing? God rejoicing over me with gladness? And it's hard to wrap my hands around that. And Paul says, I pray that you might comprehend that which is beyond your ability to comprehend, that you might know that which is beyond your ability truly to know, and that it would grip you, and it would change you. Uh, You read this verse in Zephaniah 3, and you may say, well, how is this even possible? Christian, hear me. God is not disinterested. He is not disconnected. He is not distant. You may feel that way. The enemy certainly tells you God has abandoned you. God is not nonchalant. He's not preoccupied. He's not asleeping. If you're his child, he loves you with an intensity that that you could never fully comprehend. He longs for you to know the depth of his love that he has for you. And that's why it's emphasized over and over and over so many ways and so many times in the Bible. J.C. Ryle, if you read his his, uh, commentaries on the Gospels, Matthew through John, you'll see this kind of statement he makes over and over again, that God is more eager to reveal his love to you than you are to ask for it. He's more eager to forgive you than you are to ask his forgiveness. He's more eager to draw near to you than you are to seek him. His love for you is greater than you can imagine. 
Now, wouldn't it be great if in this new year the Lord really did this? Wouldn't it be amazing if He really gripped your heart with a sense of the greatness of His love? You might say, well, get real, Pastor Jamie. I've prayed. I've studied. I've pled. I've asked God. I've struggled. Nothing that you're describing has happened to me. So why should I expect it to happen anytime soon? It doesn't seem real. It seems out of reach. Well, Paul leaves us with this promise at the end of his text. He says, now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than we ask or imagine, than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. What can God do? What is God able to do? What's he willing to do? He is able and willing to do all that we ask. Now again, according to his will. Is it God's will that he flood you with a sense of his love? I think we can say quite confidently, yes, it is. <laughs> if it's emphasized in the Bible as much as it is, I think we can say without a doubt, I know it's God's will for me to know more of his love. He's, he, he's able and he's willing to do that. He's, he's, he's able and willing to do more than all you ask or even think of asking, which means God can surprise you with tokens of his love that cause you to go, I, am, I can't believe that he would do this for me, for me. And we're amazed. It stops us in our tracks because he's done more than we, than we ask or, or even thought about asking, that, that he's done more abundantly than all we have asked or thought about asking. Far more abundantly. He's able. He's willing. Again, Sinclair Ferguson says, our prayers cannot stretch the limit of what God is able to do. It's like the hymn writer says, vast, or thou art coming to a king, large petitions with the bring. You're, he is more willing to pour out the sense of his love for you than you are to ask for it. So can God so strengthen you with power through his spirit in your heart? Or can, he, can Christ dwell in your heart through faith? Can you have the strength to comprehend and experience the, the vast dimensions of God's love for you in Jesus Christ? Can you be filled with all the fullness of God? God's able to do these things. God in his holy word says he is able and, uh, to do this, and I believe he's willing. The faith is not mustering up some great measure of spiritual strength so that somehow you're able to lay hold of it. Faith is simply believing he's faithful to his word. Not about you, it's about, it's about him. Focusing your attention on the faithfulness of God who makes great promises because he loves us with a great love. So he can do all this prayer asks. Let's pray that he will. Why would he do such a thing? Why would God flood your heart with overwhelming, life-transforming sense of the greatness of his love and his favorable presence for you? Well, the answer is because he loves you and he wants you to experience it. And he wants to manifest his, uh, his glory in you and in his church, in Christ Jesus, through all generations, which means not just the first generation of Christians, the Ephesians that are written here, but the 2021, 2023, excuse me, Christians here at Grace Baptist Church, all generations forever and ever. Amen.